This is a Federal News Network podcast. More than 25% of federal contracting dollars end up in one of six markets. That's according to analysis by Bloomberg government. For details and the opportunities they represent, we turn to the team lead for government contracting news and analysis, Amanda Allen. Ms. Allen, good to have you on. It's great to be with you, Tom. And these six markets, let's begin with what they are. Sure. Kind of split up into two categories. We've got tech-oriented markets, and then we've got some ones that would be kind of not tech. And in the not tech, we've got business and financial management services, facility services, and logistics. And then we've also got cloud, artificial intelligence, and machine learning, and digital services. Yeah, that pretty much covers the waterfront for what they're buying. It really does. (laughs) But it's not a lot of hardware like it was in days of yore. Sure. One thing that we're finding a lot of is that interoperability and consolidation of requirements, the idea that kind of in the business world, things need to go enterprise-wide, and in the government world, of course, they need to go agency-wide or even government-wide. And so the big money is finding ways to get all of what a contracting office needs or all of what an agency needs or all of what the government needs in one of those areas. Right. You hear more and more discussion, anyway, at the policy level of shared services among agencies, but that hasn't really emerged yet as a market that's discernible. So the shared services seem to be, you know, actually most of the same team who had done this webinar last week. We also did one in March about some particular contracts. And the way that we were framing that webinar, as well as most of our analysis, really, for the last eight or nine months has been on government-wide acquisition contracts, multiple award contracts that are either agency-wide or multiple agency. And I think that there isn't yet a market with boundaries around it, but we are seeing it. It is unignorable at this point. And that brings up a good question on the six areas that you did identify on the tech side and the non-tech side. Are most of those dollars that are going through theirs, and it's a couple of hundred billion dollars if it's 25% of contracting dollars, are they through the established GWACs, or is some of it still full and open competition? In the tech area, we've got major vehicles like Soup and Schedule 70 for GSA. There are smaller, fully competitive opportunities. There are also what I would call kind of good slots to find where you can fit in. You know, subcontracting is a really big opportunity for folks, even who might not consider themselves as subs in most settings. But so much of this work is so wide scale that I think a lot of folks who are winning on the major prime end of things are going to be looking for really experienced partners to be working with down the line, especially with the contracts that have the longer period of performance. And anyway, sub or prime, it's still revenue, and that's all green, I suppose. (laughs) And getting into the cloud question, what does the spending look like in terms of how much is going directly to the big commercial cloud suppliers, services, the Googles, AWS and so on. And how much is services related to getting agencies to the cloud? Because that seems to be, you know, qualitatively speaking anyway, a pretty big part of the cloud market. It very much is. What we do know is that one way I'll take an answer to this, I guess, is saying that the small business share of the cloud computing market, I think is 43%. Uh, I just actually was able to pull up the number for the last five full fiscal years. And what that tells me, right, those are not folks who are building their own cloud platforms and trying to break into the market share for the big players. Those small businesses are going to be doing quite a lot of the services-related aspect of cloud computing for the government. That's interesting. So small business gets almost half of the cloud dollars 
meaning only half goes to the big players. That's what we're seeing in, in the numbers and what we're taking a look at and analyzing the market. Interesting. And the market is growing, so it's growing in both arenas. Got it. We're speaking with Amanda Allen. She is the team lead for government contracting news and analysis at Bloomberg Government. And that artificial intelligence machine learning market, mm-hmm. how big is that? Do you have the dollars there? And what does that look like in terms of large and small business? Sure. So the AI market is one of the two smaller markets that we have. The AI machine learning market and the digital services market are significantly smaller dollar-wise than the other four. So AI is between about $1.5 billion and $2 billion right now. And we are expecting a slight dip based on our forecasting model for this full fiscal year before it goes up again in 2023. And we anticipate it continuing to go up beyond that, only because everything that we see that's coming out that's a solicitation, that is a policy document, that's a forecast from an agency, everyone in government needs to have AI-based efficiency in order to get their jobs done. We know that there are budget pressures. We know that the annual appropriations process is increasingly fraught. And the only way that agencies can get things done are by finding ways to get it done quicker. And folks seem to think that AI is the way to do that. What's particularly interesting is that over the last five full fiscal years, the share of civilian AI market spending had gone down for a bit and is now looking to even back out. The Defense Department had really kind of jumped in 2019, 2020, 2021. And what we're anticipating moving forward is a much more even share between civilian and defense in AI, at least for the unclassified defense. And getting back to the non-tech side here, the business management facilities and logistics, how does that look when you say business management and financial management? What kind of dollars are there and what are the services they're actually buying? So what we did with that one, uh, so four of our markets are the cloud AI, the logistics, and the digital services are all Bloomberg government analyst-defined markets. And The business and financial management market is one of the two that we have that is actually based on PSC codes, the standard for everyone. And what we did is we took three of those sub-markets and combined them because what we're seeing is that management advisory services are super heavyweights. I I don't actually know boxing, but whatever comes after, you know, the big guys, you know, throwing big punches at each other. And we've got north of $60 billion in the last full fiscal year for how big this kind of subcategory combination is. And what this market does is it's the, the same conversation, right? The themes of efficiency and consolidation of requirements and rationalization of what an agency or office is doing. And so rather than having government officials learn how to be, quote, you know, good business people, it's bringing in the contractors who already know how to do that type of integration, interoperability, and efficiency. So are these primarily software buys, or are they body shop type buys for people that do, I don't know, accounting and whatever else they do that relates to business management? It is absolutely, yep, it is absolutely some of that accounting. It is absolutely, um, you know, the, what did you just call it? The body shop. Body buys. Yeah, body shop. (laughs) It is anything that is technical that you you know, uh, inventories and who's going where. And so there is a bit of a, um, we did separate out what the business management part of the accounting books would look like from the tracking where something is going from warehouse to truck to user. But I think those two are, you know, nicely two sides of the same coin. And just a quick question about facilities. Is that simply rent coming from GSA or the agencies that have their own rental authority? Or is there something more that is a trend here? 
So what I think is the most interesting trend about the facilities services market is that its modernization is a lot of what's happening here. So it, and it's definitely, it's not just rent. This is the shipyard infrastructure project for the Navy. This is the Department of Energy making sure that all of their labs are run in the way that they need to be run for safety, security, national security. This is what GSA, in terms of leasing, has been making decisions about future demand because of potential telecommuting as a long-term answer for the government workforce. You know, we've also got several DOD depots that have infrastructure improvement projects underway. So this is everything from really big Los Alamos all the way to, is GSA going to need this building in the future? Right. So there's a pretty good technological and engineering component then to all of the facilities work. Absolutely, because it is not just being a landlord somewhere, right? This is being, uh, or I guess the building supervisor somewhere. This is making sure that if you're putting up a new building, that it's going to have all of the right energy efficiency and that it's going to have the right wiring so that it will be future-proof in terms of technology and the load that will be required based on how many people are going to be working there and how many computers they're going to have hooked up to all of the all of the wires. <laughs> sure. And just adding it all up, what is a generally good strategy for these types of technology and services contractors to pursue as we move into fiscal 23, if there is a fiscal 23 and beyond? I think what's really interesting to look at is that you've got very few companies probably who could go out for a, let's say, 20, 30, $40 billion modernization and facilities management contract. But those companies are not going to be able to do the personnel security. They're not going to be able to do the, you know, real basic striping the, the parking lot, right, as the example that everyone likes to use. So this is another one of those areas where even if it looks like it is too small of a market to get into, figure out who's going to be getting that big prime for doing all of the management and be able to offer your services. Amanda Allen is team lead for government contracting news and analysis at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. 
And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. 
I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. <coughs> Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. Ricola. It's in our nature.